So we are in Nehemiah chapter 5, and um, what we've been talking about for the last five or six weeks or so, as we've been studying this really obscure small book in the Old Testament called Nehemiah, is we've been talking about leadership. And with leadership, um, which we all are leaders in some capacity, some in huge capacities, some in smaller capacities, every leader has a vision. And what's crazy about vision is vision is about something that doesn't exist yet, but we are laboring to make it a reality. And here's the... <laughs> when we're talking about where we are this morning and we're looking at vision, the question is, how do we get from where we are to this place? <laughs> Don't know what that was. Do I have power? Am I gone? Hello? Because I was about to make an appointment that was going to change your lives forever. There it is. And we all have vision. We have vision for our relationships. We have vision for ourselves. We have vision for our community, for the workplace. We, some of you have vision for the city and even the country. And as believers, here's what we're grasping, is that when we come to faith, that Jesus comes in our lives and the scripture says we were dead and now we've been made alive. That what wasn't now is. And what is is now we become the place where the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And when the Holy Spirit dwells within us, he, he whispers in our ear, I made you intentionally for a purpose, a unique purpose for you. And I'm calling you now to grasp my vision for your life. And so as believers... We have this divine, holy vision from God for our lives. How do we get from where we are this morning to getting there? It takes courage. And let me tell you why it takes courage. Because the line from here to there is never like this. The line is like this. I mean, it is like, come on, man. Like, and wait, and sometimes it's broken. Because God blessed the broken road that led me. Please, come on. This road is full of decisions. And let me tell you something about decisions that you're not going to like. There is no such thing as a 100% pure vision decision. You will never make a decision in your life that is 100% correct. And if you long on this journey of vision that God gives you certainty about every decision that you're going to make on this journey, I, this is going to be really disappointing to you because God is not as interested in giving you certainty as he is to calling you to faith. And if God is not calling you to certainty, like, I got to know that the next decision I make is the right one, and you're not ever going to know that, then this whole life of journey is a journey of regret. And regrets produce anxiety. Let me try to explain to you. Think about the decision to get married. Do you think it's possible that two people could get married and after they get married, sometime in the rest of their life, they regret that they made that decision? It's not just possible. But when I do pre-marriage counseling, I said, okay, let's talk about that moment. And they're like, what moment? When you wake up in the middle of the night and you go, what have I done with my life? 
Because every decision that you make has regret to it. Get married, regret. Should I have done this? And regret treat, it creates anxiety in our lives. Or don't get married. You'll have regret. Should I have gotten married? And you'll have anxiety about that. I mean, it's no different. Take the job. If you take that job, you're going to have regret. Should I have taken this job? And that regret creates anxiety in our lives. And if you don't take the job, you're going to have regret. Should I have taken that job? Like, maybe that was the one job I should have taken, which creates regret, which creates anxiety in our lives. Or how about if you get married here and you, you're like, let's have children. If you have children, you are going to have regret. <laughs> I promise you. Nobody's saying amen yet. Like, come on. And ain't regret creates anxiety. If you choose not to have children, you know, you're 40 years old and it's Christmas and you have no children. Maybe you have regret. We should have had kids, you know, and that creates anxiety. Every decision that we make in our lives is not 100% correct because you're not 100% correct. Holy Spirit. Wow. <laughs> this seems cruel, doesn't it? Like, let's say you have kids. Like, do you homeschool them? If you do, you're going to have regret. If you don't, you're going to have regret. What does regret create? Anxiety. And what's another word for anxiety? Fear. You're going to homeschool them? You're going to send them to public school because we want to be publicly aware? You're going to regret it. Let's don't send them to public school. Let's send them to private school. Guess what? There are going to be moments where you regret it because no decision is 100% pure. And here's the crazy thing. Because remember... We have been rescued from death to life. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. We have been born again. We are God's chosen people. God has a purpose for that regret and anxiety. Romans chapter 5. So this passage here is really interesting because Paul says, Rejoice in your suffering. Hey, anxiety is suffering, right? Rejoice in your suffering. Because why? Because that suffering is producing endurance in your life. If you let it. And how do we let suffering produce endurance? By rejoicing. So Paul says, rejoice in your suffering so that your suffering can produce endurance. Because if you'll let endurance do its work, then endurance is going to produce something else in your life if you let it. And how do we let it? We rejoice. Rejoice in our endurance. Because our endurance is this going to produce character. And character has a purpose in your life, right? If you let it, character is going to produce something in you. It's going to produce hope if you let it. And how do we let it? By rejoicing. And what is hope doing? Listen to what it says. Hope does not put us to shame, right? And all that regret and all that anxiety, we are not put to shame. Why? Because hope reveals that God is pouring out his love into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see what's happening here is that the Holy Spirit is going, okay, yeah, every decision you make is going to have, going to have regret and anxiety. But let that anxiety now produce in you character, endurance, then character. And then that character is going to produce in you hope. And that hope is going to explode. And what's going to happen is you're going to realize the foundation of this vision is actually love. God's pouring his love out in your heart, which is going to transform your understanding of your vision. Is that, that's kind of confusing, isn't it? Let me try to explain. Nehemiah. All right, this is Nehemiah chapter 5. 
Renee is actually our reader today. Renee! And um, let me give you a little heads up. What's happened is Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, Archaxerxes, and the city of Jerusalem uh, had been torn up and torn down, and all the Jews were moving back. The walls were destroyed. The gates were destroyed. Nehemiah was heartbroken that the people of Jerusalem were not safe, and he went to King Archaxerxes and said, would you give me permission and authority and resources to go back and to rebuild the city walls? And King Archaxerxes says, yeah, go. So this was Nehemiah's mission, to go rebuild the wall. That was Nehemiah's purpose. This was Nehemiah's vision, to rebuild the wall and to rebuild the gates, okay? So he thought until he ran into this. All right, chapter 5. Renee, would you just read the first five verses? Hang on, hang on. You're not on. We're... Oh, you're awesome at it. There you go. I never get it on right. No, that's all right. Anyway, <laughs> whatever. Uh, <laughs> now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Okay, so let me try to give you a little pers perspective of what's happening here. So when they started to rebuild the wall, the people that rebuild the wall were the people of Jerusalem. None of these people were professional wall builders. They were perfumers and goldsmiths and merchants. And um, so all the people came together to rebuild the wall. In fact, they took time away from their businesses that provided for their families to go and do this wall construction. And this group of people have come to Nehemiah, and they're the most vulnerable in the community. They're the poorest in the community. They're the part of the community that says, we can't afford to leave our jobs and come work on the wall because we're in big trouble. And it was the farmers. They were the poorest in the community. And he goes, hey, Nehemiah, we got a problem here. And the problem is that a famine has hit the land. And last harvest season was devastating for us. And working on the wall may cost us our whole livelihood. It gets worse. He says, Nehemiah, last season we had to go borrow money from our fellow Jews. All those people standing around you right there, we borrowed money from them just to buy grain last season so that we could plant our fields. And it gets worse. Nehemiah, we came up short on paying them what we owed them because the king came in and put a tax on us, and we had to pay that tax or we we're going to lose our farm. Nehemiah gets worse. When we couldn't pay the king his tax and we couldn't pay those fellow Jews the interest they were charging us on our property, we had to sell our children into slavery. Like, look how devastating this is. We sent our children into slavery never to see them again. 
because it was either them go someplace where they can eat or we're all going to starve here. And it's worse than that. After we did all of that, those Jews standing around you came and foreclosed on us and they own our farms. We own nothing now. That's what they were doing. They came to Nehemiah. And what has Nehemiah said? I came here to build a wall. I want to hear about this. This injustice that's happening in our society. That's not my call. That's not what I'm doing here. Are you kidding me? I'm just here to do the masonry work of putting brick on top of brick and making sure we get this wall done. I'm not here for injustice. But because of love, God begins to expand Nehemiah's understanding of his calling. And what's the expansion of his understanding of his calling? God is saying, you're not here to build a wall, you're here to build a city. And a city is made up of people. And what Nehemiah didn't know at the time is you're rebuilding the city because there's going to come a day where a child is going to be born. And that child is going to be the savior of the world. You're a part of redemptive history, you don't even know it. But right now, he's expanding Nehemiah's understanding of his vision. Are you with me on this? In other words, what God is saying to Nehemiah and what he's saying to us, wherever you go, you can't get away from you. And you, if you understand who you are, you bring this vision of love wherever you go. So I grew up, anybody here grew up in the 70s? Please, let there be one person here. God bless you. Yes, I see that one. The buses will wait. Yes, all right. There was a television show that my brothers and I, it was our favorite television show in the 70s. It was called Kung Fu. You may not know this show. <clears throat> Deep dive Kung Fu when you get home today. All right. But it was David Carradine. And yes, thank, have a seat, Renee. And <laughs> David Carradine played this character. He was a monk in China and he was uh, a Kung Fu master. And because of injustice, he fought the emperor and killed the emperor and had to run for his life. So every episode was David Carradine, who's now Cain. He's walking through the West, you know, and he's walking in these towns, and he's this monk who's a man of profound wisdom and profound peace, and he meditates, and he just has, he's so centered. Every episode had him walking into a small town, every one of them. And every episode had him encountering somebody who was suffering from injustice. Every episode. And every episode was him trying to bring peace and harmony and the kung fu way to these communities to bring healing. Every episode. And every episode he failed. Because every episode he ended up having to use kung fu to, to kick the tail of bad guys to restore the harmony of the universe. But here's the reason we knew what the plot was for every episode is because no matter what the episode was, Cain was in it. You with me? Every episode he was in it. And Cain could only be Cain. And every episode of your life, you're in it. And if you're part of the kingdom of God, you can't help but be you. And God is going to expand your understanding of the vision he's called you to because he's going to root you in love. And that's why Nehemiah didn't walk away. Instead, Nehemiah walked right into it. And here's what i got to say to you. Midtown, if you're going to seek to live out God's vision for your life, you are going to come against injustice. It's going to happen. I promise you. We live in an unjust world. We live in a broken world. John Calvin used to say, sin should never surprise us. If you understand the fallenness of man, it's goodness that should surprise us. 
And the same is our story. As we go to live out that vision, knowing that we're ambassadors of the kingdom of God, like Cain was in those episodes, we are in our lives, then this is always going to cause us to come into this with injustice. Okay? So he did three things in this passage, and we're going to learn from that for ourselves. Renee, would you like to continue reading? Thank you. When I heard their outcry, these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as pe possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Second was, we are spending money given to us by King Artaxerxes to go out into all the world and buy Jews out of slavery and bring them home. And as soon as we bring the train of slaves that are free now back into the city, you're sending a train back out into the world that are now new slaves that we have to go out and buy again and bring them back. See the injustice? Okay, keep it. As far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more them, from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Thank you, Renee. <clears throat> so uh, Nehemiah is brilliant in the way that he tackled this problem. And we could talk about the brilliance of him bringing everybody together in front of the priests and the elders and really what I want to do is I want to camp out on two verses, and those two verses are going to help us, help you, as you're going on this broken road that's imperfect, that's full of anxiety, to be courageous so that you can live out and grasp God's vision for your life in the context of love, okay? So look at verse 6. Look what happens. It says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind, and then I accused the nobles. So Nehemiah did three things. The first thing is he got angry. The second thing was that he, he pondered, which is a great word, isn't it? When was the last time you used that in a sentence? What are you doing today? Pondering. And then third, he had an action. Had an action plan that he, he came up with and executed. So let's talk about getting angry. <clears throat> I love this. We talk about emotions here at Mid Midtown a lot because that's the way God made you, that you serve an emotional God. He has emotions, and he made you to feel too. What's crazy about anger is for a lot of you, that's the one emotion that always got put into the category of, no, 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 no. 
don't ever get angry. In fact, we've been taught, many of us, that if we do get angry, there's no way that we can be angry and be here. <clears throat> Those two don't go together. That there's nothing good that's coming out of my anger. And yet, I'm here to tell you, anger is my favorite emotion. I'm it is, I love anger. When I have staff people come to my office and I'm angry, I'm like, yes! This is awesome! I can't wait to hear what you're angry about. And then they tell you, they're angry with me. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> the reason I love this, and let me say this first. When I say anger, many of us confuse anger with rage. Many of us have not been able to separate the difference between rage and anger. I'm not talking about the, the toxic, self-protective, uh, condemning emotion that is anything but vulnerable. When we rage, what we're doing is we're actually, we're, we're allowing our emotions to keep us from actually being seen or vulnerable. Rage is the emotion that pushes everybody away. Rage is the emotion that takes control of a situation so that nobody can see who you really are. Rage is that thing that you're hoping you'll use to shut down all conversations, take control of situations, abuse people, all in an attempt to protect yourself. That's not anger. Anger is the most vulnerable of emotions because anger is that emotion that lets you know and lets other people know that something deeply matters to you. Here's the crazy thing about anger. Anger reveals that you're a victim of love. Because when I'm angry about something, it's because I'm angry for something. When I'm angry about my children being mistreated, it's because I'm angry for my children to be loved. When I'm angry against injustice in the city, it's because I'm angry for justice in this city. When I hear about children up in the Napier community, like last week, that will spend their summers in food insecurity, and some of those kids go to bed hungry every night, it makes me angry against that because I'm angry for them to have full bellies because they live 10 minutes from me, and I go to bed every night with food in my refrigerator uneaten. I'm angry for something. I love what Chip Dodd said, and if you're a rookie when it comes to understanding anger and exploring this super beautiful spirit-filled gift that God has given you. He says, anger will ignite a passion inside of you to be willing to be in pain for something worth more than the pain. Where does pain come from? Anxiety. Suffering. This is what I experience. Chip Dodd goes on and says, this is what the experience of being loved is like. Without anger, we cannot love ourselves or any other human. It is painful to love and to be loved, and it is worth the pain, says anger. See, to be fully alive is to feel. And if you've decided already that you're not going to feel anger, then you're doing something with it. Peter Scazzaro says, we bury emotions, but emotions never die. We just bury them alive. And then they come out, and they're like emotional zombies, you know? They're just walking around our life because we can't selectively numb our emotions. If you're going to uh, numb anger, you've got to numb all the emotions because they all travel in a pack together. And I know that I could spend the next hour talking about anger, and I'm, I'm trying not to give you full description on anger. I'm trying to give you permission to be angry. 
and I'm trying to give you permission to go on a journey that your emotional maturity is an intricate part of your spiritual maturity. And if you don't know how to be angry, you need to go on the journey of discovering that. And I'm inviting you on that journey. We see right here, Nehemiah was angry. He didn't apologize for his anger. You know who else didn't apologize for his anger? Jesus. Yeah. In John chapter 2, maybe you've read this, where he turned over the money changers in the temple, and he drove out people that were selling things and turned the church of God into a marketplace. Listen to what it says in verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeon and the money changers sitting there. And then it says, he went away and he made a whip of cords. He went away and made a whip, like an Indiana Jones bullwhip. Like he, and just think, he's just sitting there, and is he raging while he's making? No. He is appropriately God-centered angry. Why? Because he's angry for something that the house of God would be a place of prayer. Because Jesus knew something. Well, this is just a rabbit trail. Just bonus track, all right? Just stay with me. Do you realize that the temple of God, this city of Jerusalem and the temple of God, this was just a foreshadowing of what? Us. The temple was where people went to meet with God, and God would descend on the temple. Why? Because God said, now you're the temple. You're where I dwell. So when Jesus is is doing this cord, he's doing it for you. What is he angry for? That you would know that you are not a place that's measured by commerce. That you would know that your life is not summed up in your trade or your resume or what you've done or what you haven't done or how you failed or how you succeeded. That your life would be measured by something what? Something very different, which is what? You You are where God dwells. He was angry for you. Okay, we could talk about that. That was sidetrack. So Nehemiah got angry. But he didn't just stop at anger. He pondered. He was a ponderer. And what does that mean that he pondered? Actually, the Hebrew says that uh, if you translate it, literally is that he consulted with himself. And when we stop and we ponder, and we, when we stop and allow our anger to speak to us, And our anger talks to us about what it is that we really love. And our anger now is calling us to live a life of love, which is calling us to a life of action. We first have to become ponderers. And pondering really has three parts to it. One is that we spend time with our own thoughts. We spend time with ourselves. Like, what's happening in here? What is this? But we also need to spend time with the Lord, which we do through his word and through wisdom. And then, believe it or not, we spend time with others. In Proverbs 19, it says, Listen to advice and accept instruction, that you may gain wisdom in the future. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but, it's, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. In other words, when I spend time with myself, when I spend time with the Lord, and then when I spend time with others, God begins to bring wisdom into my life. And, and i got to give you just kind of a heads up. Here's, here's something I want you to know that If you're spending time with yourself and you're angry for something and you don't know what to do, that is God's mercy. You know that if God wanted, he could write what you should do on the sky. He could have, like, you know, 
just bugs like ants crawl out and just form words on the, on the table. And, you can do all that, all right? But when God is not letting me know what it is exactly that he wants me to do, it's because he doesn't want you to know. And that is his mercy, because if you knew at this point in your life, it would hurt you. And God may be saying to you, the reason you don't know is because the people that you need in your life, you've not invited them into, into your life yet. And I have found many times in my own life where I've spent time with myself and I've spent time with the Lord, and I still was confused about this anger, what I love, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? And I started inviting other people. And I realized, oh, you didn't want me to know until the right people were around the table because what you're calling me to do, you don't want me to do alone. You're calling me this community of people. You've made me for family, and you want family with me. So I'm not picking this up by myself. So when uh, Midtown first started, I mean, we were, wow, there was 10 people, and five of those were my family. And uh, we just had such vision and we did, I, I'd never read a book on church planning. I didn't, I didn't know a church planner. I'd just become a pastor. I'm like, what do we, I don't know what to do. And I spent time with the Lord, and the Lord said, just wait and listen. He told me two things, wait and listen, and two, don't ever take credit for what I'm about to do. Don't ever. So I'm not 100%, and no decision that he gave me was 100%. So I had to learn how to, with courage, deal with anxiety, and I invited a group of people around the table. One was Gary Scudder, who died a number of years ago, a couple of years ago. He was a professor at the Owen School over here at Vanderbilt, eventually became the dean, just a brilliant guy who loved to wear bow ties, uh, not midtown. And the other was a guy named Steve Lorenz. Steve, uh, just this amazing intellectual, has a master's from Harvard Business School, he was one of the guys that helped start contemporary Christian music as you know it. Like, if I could tell you his resume, you'd be like, really? That was him? That was him. And these two guys uh, met with me for two hours every Wednesday afternoon. I'm, it's like, I'm, people would pay to be with these guys, and these guys said, yeah, we'll meet with you. And that formed the table where God said, through this table, through this council, I'll show you what to do. And then... Uh, George Landalt came along, which, if you don't know George, um, all I can describe him as, I call him the soul ninja. Like, if he walked in back there and he had a ninja suit on, I wouldn't surprise me at all. A David Kiernan, all right? But God used these three men to speak into my life every week. Anger, ponder and listen, and then action. So we see in this passage that he had this brilliant plan to call them out of wrong into right, and he had this brilliant plan to call them to live under God's absolute truth and fear of the Lord, and he also called them to consider um, the story that they were telling to the world by the way they were treating one another, <clears throat> called them to repentance, and then he called them to rest restitution. And <clears throat> you can go study that, and it's a great prescription for how do we deal with injustice in the world that we live in. But in just the two minutes that we have left together, I want to talk about going for a minute. The actual putting together the plan and then doing it. In Matthew chapter 28, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them. Jesus had died, now he's risen again, and this is the last moment that Jesus is going to spend with his disciples. 
In verse 17, it says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. These are his disciples. Some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And listen to what he says. This is his last words to the doubters, the imperfect, nobody's 100% certain group of people, just like us. He says, I'll be with you always. What does that mean? In all our doubts, in all our brokenness, in all our messiness, in the story of Nehemiah, I'm like the money lenders. I, I can't tell you how many times I've sinned against the high king of heaven, where we have leveraged our own position, uh, even on the backs of those that are not as privileged as we are, the times that we've participated in injustice, the times that we've not been pure in the ways of God, and here's what it says in Romans chapter 5. While we were enemies of God, enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? While I was God's enemy, I wasn't just the one that was enslaved. I was also the one that enslaved others. Jesus said, I'll pay. And Jesus went to the cross for me. Why? to usher me into the kingdom of love by displaying love to me, by pouring it into my life by the power of his Holy Spirit. And that's why in Revelation chapter 12, as we go on this vision, here's your power source. It says, we triumph over the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and by the testimony of the saints. And what is our testimony? We are loved. We're in the kingdom. And wherever I go, I bring the kingdom with me. And when I know this, it gives me a kaleidoscope of brilliant complexities and wonder and beauty of the vision God has given me for my life. Okay. That's all I got to say. But here's what we're going to do. All right. If you're your first time here, uh, let me tell you, apologize. Um, you know, if we did anything this morning that took you away from seeing the Lord, we have that capacity. But this is not a show. Um, you're here, we believe, for a divine purpose, that, that God has set you up, that something that's been said in this last 25 minutes is something you needed to hear. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just pause. I'm going to kind of guide us through some prayer. Then what we're going to do is the band's going to come back in and lead us in a couple more songs to allow you to worship the Lord from that place. That may be new to you. Just give yourself to it, okay? All right. Let's pray. Father, the great lover of our soul, the one that is rebuilding the walls of our lives, the one who came to us when we were enemies, and instead of demanding justice from us, you gave us mercy. Instead of asking us to pay our debt, you paid our debt. Instead of asking us to make restitution for all the brokenness in our lives, you did. 
You shed your own blood, and we pause now to worship you. Thank you for the emotion of anger. Redeem it in our lives. Thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit that speaks to us. Teach us to listen. Thank you, Father, for the action and and call to go that we would experience the wonder of grasping your vision for our lives. And now, Lord, would you speak to us? We are listening. Jesus, we want to know you. We want to know you and the beauty and the wonder of all that you are. That you would give us courage to not just see you, but to go where you go. In Christ's name.